Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, we're live. Mike, you want to run with run with that disclaimer first? Yes. The uh, information. Oh, let me just do that. The information you're going to hear here here on this uh, Resolvers Happy Hour is for um, entertainment purposes. If you'd like really good investment advice, maybe it's here, maybe it's not. But you should consult a financial professional in any event on anything you might want to consider. So, just want to put that out there before we start today. And uh, did you want to introduce Bobby? Sure. So Bobby is, um, so what, what's your, like, are you president? Like what's the actual official title of, uh, of RCM? I am the managing partner and the founder. The managing president partner reports to him. Yes. RCM based <laughs> out of Chicago. The stops with me, unfortunately. So yeah, I like it. Bobby, we do, we've done a lot of, uh, we've all shared a bunch of fantastic stories that I'd like you to share with us today as well from, from a bit of your past life, but uh, with you guys, we've had a great relationship from the get-go. Um, you guys run a bunch of different businesses that we can get to, but for us, it's been working with you as an in, introducing broker, um, uh, as well as looking at some of the technology for fast execution for markets, but marketing on the future side. I mean, you guys have been in the future space. Uh, you've seen it all. Um, so I, I'd love to get for everybody to get a little bit of a background on um, what you do now, but also how you got there, which is an, an interesting and fun story as well. It's a very unorthodox beginning. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I started off in 98 on the floor of the CME, uh, and that was just about when the NASDAQ was becoming a little bit more trendy to uh, to trade. Uh, and so I started off clerking for a guy named Joe Santoro, who was this 50-year-old Italian guy that was a complete lunatic and one of the greatest guys in the world. And I remember the first or the second week I was working on the floor and I was arbing the signals. And, you know, I still do that when I talk a lot and I'm quoting Deutsche Bank and, you know, UBS and, you know, there's a minute and a half, two minutes left in the close. And uh, this guy from Deutsche says, sell 50. I turn around to give it to my broker to Joe and he's having a massive heart attack on the floor. And I'm start screaming, Oh my God, what, you know, what do I do? Help me. And the guy, do, do you guys swear on this or anything? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It, 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 we purposely swear to keep it, make sure the kids don't watch. Okay, perfect. So the guy <laughs> from Deutsche goes, fuck you. You, you're out. And passes it to this other guy. And only until the bell rang, uh, the paramedics got there. And I and he survived. Uh, but I was that was like a big introduction for me to the floor. And I was just like, man, this place is insane. I love it. And uh, what year was this, Bobby? This is 98. So uh, about six months later, because I was pretty aggressive, uh, they put me on a badge and uh, I wound up buying the seat and uh, I became a broker in the NASDAQ. And ultimately, we wound up controlling my brother and I bought the group over six months after that, which was relatively small. Uh, and that's when NASDAQ really blew up. And we did about 80 percent of all the institutional flow in the NASDAQ. And then side by side, I was trading spoos. 
and because uh, the NASDAQ overlooked the spoo pit. Uh, and so I had clerks, my brother and I had clerks, uh, you know, working in the spoos and we would just be flashing in orders nonstop throughout the day. Uh, and then we started a proper and we were trading what really one of the first guys, us and uh, Susquehanna, uh, I'm sure you guys know who they are, yeah. uh, and Timber Hill, which is Pettifree's old company. Uh, we were the first three groups to really do the ARB between uh, the futures, the E-mini, which was completely inefficient. It was trading $15 wide, right? Lagger to the pit, which was crazy. Uh, the, the greatest of times. Good old days. Yeah, oh, the, the best old days. Uh, and then we had uh, we are trading options at the SIBO and then had market makers at the Amex trading against synthetic cash baskets. So with the spreads that big, it was really a phenomenal time. Um, and then from there, I started and I wound up back in uh, 70 guys, did well, uh, kind of sold out. Did a short stint in Hollywood for five years, which we I'm sure we can go into, and then uh, made some pretty bad movies. Uh, and then uh, wound up starting up my equity option firm, grew that to about 120 guys. Uh, we're regulated out in 2010, and that's when I started RCM. So that's a long-winded version of my background, both on the futures, the equity, equity option side, on the brokerage, as well as the the prop side. So. Right, that's right, fantastic. Yeah. That's a huge arc. But what what are the similarities that you see in in this business versus the uh, the movie business? Oh God, uh, the lunacy. Um, <laughs> so being you know back in the days when you know Goldman used to come in and they were paying you a couple million a year, whatever it was to your group, they'd say, "Great, we're going to whack you for twenty thousand in wine. We want these sweets. We want this. We're going." You know, I mean, it was crazy back then. Uh, well, that's how the movie business is. I mean, it's it's just nonstop. And and back like in Chicago, at least in the 90s and early 2000s, traders ran the city. And all everybody was just clamoring on the traders. You go out to these clubs, these bars, and, you know, these, it, the girls would be all over you. And then in Hollywood, it's no different. The minute you get your first article up in The Hollywood Reporter – Next thing you know, you're you're having conversations, not Harvey Weinstein conversations, <laughs> but conversations. Let me be clear. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I wasn't Harvey Weinstein by any stretch, um, but you know, it was a great time. It was a lot of fun. I lived on the beach in Malibu, and you know, I was still trading first thing in the morning. And my office was at Warner Brothers in the old Frank Sinatra suite, so it was like surreal to me, you know. And one of the greatest stories I wow. I remember was very early on on one of my first movies. I would when I lost a lot of money trading in a day, I'd go to the movies by myself, and that was my escape for two hours. And Robert, I think I probably have told you this. Yeah, right. And then, you know, and then you know, push comes up, I'm doing a Bruce Willis movie, and uh, you know, the the movie falls apart last minute, and Bruce Willis got into a part, fight with my with his producing partner, who was our producing partner, and uh, you know, getting the deposition done. And during one of the meetings, he just sat there and mouthed to me, and he goes. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing in my life. John McClane just told me to go fuck myself. You know, I mean, I, I go, you think you're, you know, you're trying to intimidate me. I think this is awesome. You know? And so it was. I'm uh, writing this in my diary. Yeah, exactly. diary. So, yeah, but it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've had the opportunity to work with some tremendous people, not only at RCM, but before that, you know, the household names and, and you don't realize their household names when you're dealing with them as a young guy, but uh, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So That's fantastic. That is pretty spectacular. So when, when did you get back to so Chicago? Uh, what year was it you got back to Chicago, started RCM again? 
Uh, start RCM in 10, uh, really came back in nine when, uh, 2009, when the SIBO, who was our SRO, our regulator, uh, came in and, and kind of changed these rules around uh, as far as order placements and stuff like that. And it was targeted against us, Sesquana, Goldman, and uh, Citadel, and the Peak Six, and Wolverine. And um, ultimately, we, didn't, we, you know, we couldn't survive it. We didn't have the technology. And essentially what it was was when you're trading equity options or you have a prop firm, you have a master account, and then each trader is a sub-account or each group is a sub-account. And ultimately, uh, they came out and said because of our professional status, we had a beneficial uh, opportunity over anybody else. And therefore, you know, when we're trading volar bleep type strategies, you know, when you place orders out in the book a year out or a year and a half out, right. Or as soon as they come back online, uh, you need to be in there and cause it's based on pro rat and whatever. And they, they wound up saying you lose your place in the order book. We're charging an extra 20 cents or 25 cents a contract. And it just made it, you know, the, everybody else had an advantage over us. And, you know, for us, it would have cost us, you know, we were trading 6 million options a month. So uh, it would have gotten expensive really quick. So after a couple months, we just said we had our fun. We had a great run. Get out. <laughs> right. Yeah, nice. I do hear that feedback as well, Adam. I think, I don't sure if we, everyone jiggle their cables. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I mean the cable on your mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. It's 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 just it's subsided. Like come back, we'll stop and figure it out. But yeah, um, you're popping a little bit there too, Rod. You're a little close. Yeah, all good, all good. So 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 what? So so those so the have the changes in the business been that have caused those leaps for you been more regulatorily based? So there was there was a gap in the market. You're filling it. You're providing service to the market. Then the regulations change a little bit and then sure. you've got a reposition. Is that, is that how that journey it sounds to me like it is, but maybe. Yeah. So on the, on the certainly on the brokerage side and the trading side, regulation has been, had the biggest impact uh, on, on all the businesses I've had in this industry. Um, as it pertains to certain types of trades, it just gets tighter and you're, you're taking more risk to make less money. And so ultimately you decide to move on and go to a different trade. Uh, and so that's from a from a pure PL and prop trading side. That was the biggest uh, reason why we decided to shift there. Um, but on the brokerage side, and certainly with the RCM, I mean that's how RCM was really created. Was the fact that after 08, the banks no longer could provide certain services. And uh, coming out of our institutional background from a trading perspective, we felt like we could go create that almost like prime broker type model in the future space uh, with some of the bank relationships we had, and that's essentially how we started. So right. kind of out of a, a necessity for what we were trying to accomplish also. So that's, that's really neat. Any, anything that, um, anything that stands out to you in that, in that sort of that journey or that arc? Um, cause I do want to, I do want to paint a bit of a picture there. Cause I do want us to talk about China and I want to talk about yeah. the shift in China and the growth in China and where you might think that we are in that arc versus, sure. you know, sort of what your career has been and maybe even, uh, what was your, your fellow's name? Fat Tony. It's not his name, but uh, your your uh, mentor, you know, sort of even thinking about the stories back from his arc and his career and then maybe positioning that uh, Did to you give. watch that Netflix episode, the the mafia episode where Fat Tony was, it was all about Fat Tony in New York. Tony Slim. No, no. I literally just watched it the other night and that's what it was all about. Um you know, for me, the the biggest thing that's decided where I go in the industry is where the opportunity is, right? Uh, I think one thing that um, has always been certain is that everything's going to change. And either you can be, 
you know, stagnant and ultimately become archaic, or you can be more dynamic and do a SWOT analysis of your competitors and say, how can I be out in front to be able to provide more service either to ourselves as a trader or to our clients as traders? And I think that's what we've done, including uh, the way we've adapted and acquired different firms over the last, I would say, seven years, uh, whether it be the attains of the world, uh, to different now groups on the ag side, to our technology unit, our CMX, which is our algo unit, which uh, yeah. has been a huge uh, uh, investment for us, and ultimately China as well. So, I mean, if you look at where the opportunity is over the next couple of years, where is it going to be, right? right. Um, it's you got to look at different markets where uh, it's not saturated and you're going to still get those spreads like I saw back in the day, right? And I still think there's certain levels of inefficiency that exist there that don't really exist anywhere else right now well it's funny you, you mentioned so if that map the, the, oh, sorry no, you, so you I, I was actually gonna yep. pass it off to you adam because i know you you probably have these facts a little bit better than me um because you're talking about the e-minis and how they were so inefficient at the beginning and i think we were watching a um a webinar on um the fact i think the e-mini is the most traded future on the planet now yeah and I think I was going to pass that over to you, Adam, to maybe talk about that. Maybe your recollection of that part of the presentation was a little bit better or more salient. I'm just just the e transition in that vehicle, and but yeah, I mean it's it is it is amazing to think that when so what year was that when they launched the E mini and it was trading 15 points wide and like what? <laughs> uh, so I think they launched in '97. I don't remember exactly when. Maybe '96, '97. Uh, but. You, it really became kind of nuts back in 98, right? During the tech boom and, and all the way through 2002. One of the biggest reasons why this margins were that wide was because it was the product wasn't fungible at the time. So if you Good bought night. five in the pit, it was against 25, let's say, you know, five, you, you're long five, short 25 spoos uh, or minis, you still had to unwind it, right? And then even when it became, and all of a sudden, as soon as you, you know, it became fungible, it, the spreads went down a little bit, but it was still pretty wild for a while, right? And that's, remember, when Greenspan used to sneeze, we used to move 300 handles in in a minute. And, you know, if you weren't on the right side, you, you had problems. And I think right now, like, I trade NASDAQ and Spoos here and there, not successfully anymore. Um, I need to start using our own algos. Uh, but, um, you know, even with... You know, the way I trade now, like we're trading in quarter ticks, I think, or quarter handles. Um, back then, we were trading five, 10 handle increments. So the market would be 70, 75, 70, 80. And, you know, if you just sat there and, you know, hit the bid, hit the offer, you made 10 grand just like that. So, um, and that happened all the time, but in 100 lots. Like you were, right. I mean, you know, so it was, uh, it was a good time. It was a lot of fun. I mean, but and also, now contrast you know, that. I, I, I would say, yeah, I always say if you were a bad trader, you did okay because momentum was your friend. If you were a good trader, you you crushed it. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess where Mike was going was, I mean, we, yeah, we just watched a presentation on the rise of, of the carry trade and they were zeroing in on ES as the primary vehicle to source liquidity. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure I got the numbers right, but something like like 15% of all total dollar volume of tra of financial transactions, like liquid financial transactions in securities markets globally take place through the ES. Like it's just astonishing the growth in this 
single instrument because every risk manager in the world hedges their risk That's using right. ES, right? That's right. Whether you um, trade in equities or whatever else. And certainly before equities was trading, you know, in a, after hours, you know, when we had our equity option positions on, we always used to normalize everything to the spoofs. So right. we would come up with our, you know, whatever our formulaic model was and say, okay, we have this delta exposure, whatever else. And let's, you know, and let's say we are, there was a, uh, uh, Biotech stock earnings coming out, we we're petrified because those things were gap 90 bucks at a pop. And so we would hedge against the synthetic basket against the spoofs of the futures. Mm -hmm. And I think that wasn't unique to us. Everyone does that. And it's still yeah. to this day does it. So yeah, now every pension, endowment, bank, risk desk, every institution in the world is hedging their system, their systemic risk using ES futures. And so yes, it is, the VIX, right? It, it continues to be just based on that U.S. Yeah. market. That, that well, I think the, the thing is the source of liquidity, right? What That's is going to be right. able to trade in that period of time of duress? And, yeah. and so yeah. it, it's, it becomes the default. And, and certainly as we see, you know, because uh, we deal with a lot of big commercials overseas and whatnot, you know, they're, oh, especially if they're publicly traded or whatnot, they, they people want to start, you know, they want to be trading almost exclusively exchange traded products versus OTC because uh, investors, uh, boards, whoever, they want the transparency and they also know they want the liquidity uh, and you get that. And that's why I think a lot of those products, whether it be VIX, whether it be crude, whether it be certainly Spooz, NASDAQ, you know, Russell, whatever it is, those, I mean, the, the volumes have just gone up dr dramatically, right? Yeah. You mean, you minimize counterparty risk, right? Yeah, You're doing right. through the exchanges. So, how does so? I think the arc of this is you understand that there were inefficiencies back then for the spoos. Uh, that we've, we've seen more and more efficiency in the most traded market on the planet, and this varies depending on which global equity market you're trying to trade in the futures exchange. But you know, what we're seeing after speaking with you guys for a couple of years on China, I mean, th they're doing a large push to try to make to legitimize their futures market. Yeah. And how they're trying to get that market legitimized is by asking players all over the world to come and partner up with other firms in uh, locally in China to be able to just simply trade, simply yeah. like create some liquidity yeah. and uh, and then possibly if you can make some money. Right. So how, how yeah. are you seeing all the everything you've learned in the past translate into this kind of frontier market in, in, in China? Yeah. So that's a great question. I, you know, the way we look at it is they're, they're about 20, 30 years behind us um, wow. in, in so many ways in technology for sure, as it pertains to trading for sure. Right. Yeah, uh, you guys are kind of building a lot of the new technology that you're, you're like at the frontier of this and, and really helping them learn how to trade these things, get the technology up to speed and all. We're, we're trying, right. And it's not just to benefit us. It's to benefit everybody because as more stuff becomes more liquid and they start bringing out more contracts, then, more opportunity exists for everybody. Um, but yeah, we have been at the forefront of trying to get, uh, educate them, whether it be on certain technologies, on Western, you know, uh, thought processes uh, to understanding outside due diligence, setting up structures in Hong Kong. I do think uh, where we've seen, you know, technology become more in play uh and the citadels and the jumps of the world take advantage from a high frequency perspective. And then CTAs come uh, into play, let's say on the future side or hedge funds have their moment. Uh, that is still relatively young there. And you're seeing quant groups 
do well over there, whether it be on the future side or doing some sort of ARB or, you know, long short. Uh, the quants are actually educated in the U.S. And most of them, most Chinese used to stay in the U.S. Now they realize, well, there's a hell of a lot more opportunity to go trade and make money there. The biggest challenges you have there, if you have success, is you piss off the wrong person and next thing you know, the regulators are there or, you know, um, they just shut you down one day. Or the, if you get big enough, the government just says, you know what, we are 70% of your assets because they're through government, you know, SOEs. And uh, now you work for us. And guess what? There goes your first class ticket. You're now flying coach. You know, you're now getting, big, getting paid a couple hundred thousand dollars a year versus 30 million USD a year. You know, so yeah, I, I remember uh, when Russia, I'm uh, a trader I was talking to said the same thing about Russia, you know, 20 years ago. He's like, if you want to get screwed over, go and build a successful business in Russia. Because the moment that you're successful, the government will come in and take it all away from you and possibly yeah. put you in jail. Every time I go to China and I come out and I get through the four stages of, of customs, I thank God I make it to the other side. And until that plane's up in the air, you just don't know because, you know, you have, um, if you're having any bit of success there and let's say uh, we're working with one fund over there and we choose to take one of our CTA clients over there to that one fund that go live and we decide to pass on this fund, that fund was going to get pissed. And they start making calls to the CSRC, which is obviously our version of the SEC, FINRA, CTA, uh, CFTC. And there, there's no due process. It's <laughs> you're shut down right now. And then, you know, you have trouble getting money out of the uh, out of the system and it just becomes chaotic. And so we've had to deal with those issues. And it's I you know, I can tell you it's it's scary when you're over there, um, but uh, it's it's very tough to work in that type of environment that is so different and not westernized to the level that we're all used to. Yeah, uh, the rule of law. On, and we take for granted because there's yeah. so much. The regulation actually works in our favor a lot here because there is that transparency. And, um, you know, but try getting a fund admin to work over there. It's just they, two years ago, they didn't understand what a fund admin was. And, you know, they've got, you know, if you're working with, if you're trying to do due diligence like us and LGT, we're just working together on this one strategy over there. Well, how do you actually figure out what their return profile is because they're not actually reporting it and they have 70 different SMAs, which are called funds. And well, how do you know they're, how do you know they're giving them uh, yeah. this program versus that, you know, return pro you just don't know. So my brother, my brother works in Lima, Peru. He works for a uh, private equity firm and they have a private equity fund, all private assets. He calls me the other week and he says, listen, I'm trying to figure out a way to get, we have to put our NAVs online now at the end of each month. And do you have a software that we could use that we could upload? So I call him up and I'm like, all right, well, look, all, all you need to do is make sure you can use this software, but all you need to do is make sure your administrator uh, uploads a nav on, on an FTP site where they can pull it. And he's like, administrator, what's that? And I'm like, well, whoever calculates your NAV, and he's like, oh, we do that. We make that like, up. Ooh. I mean, we do that. <laughs> like me and my partner. Like, do you guys literally like type in what you think it's worth? <laughs> Put it in a spreadsheet. That's not that far like, off the private uh, asset like, market. Yeah. I mean, and how? what do the regulators think about that? I'm like, I don't know. They so have a it, But how do you value it? It's like, we assume yeah. that, you know, certain metrics, we put them in, and then people will believe us. Yeah. Right? Like, this is... 
this is where I'm like, okay, well, then whatever you're plugging in, just plug it into this piece of software. It's, it's, it's funny that because I remember when I first started in this space uh, in, in, with RCM and, uh, you know, we brought on Paul Rieger and some of those guys and yeah. uh, who have done phenomenal things with us. They, um, I, after looking at some of these larger CTAs, I actually had a couple hundred million on the manager. I said, well, how do we validate your returns? Well, who does your numbers? And they said, well, we do. I said, what do you, I, I, and we made a policy at RCM about probably eight years ago to not work with funds that were not using third party auditors and fund admin because you just can't validate. And it was the Madoff issue, right? So right. Um, I think it's, it's, that still definitely exists over in China. I can tell you that. But, but clearly so, the, the okay. thing is to be there for, I mean, when we were discussing China, one of the key things was, well, who was, who's got the most experience 10 years from now when it is a viable business and people do want to do a lot of business in China, you're going to want to go with the most experienced firms, right? The people that have been there from the beginning, the, the, the pioneers. And True. so the decision to kind of think about China was one of, do we want to eat the shit for the next yeah. five years in order to be at the top of the heap in the next 10 to 15 years, which is an interesting question, right? Is it worth it? It, you're right. I mean, you know, when the way we looked at it from our perspective is that we we went around to some of our competitors, not so much in the futures business, but like BTIG, Cowan, groups like that. And so why are you not going? And uh, it's just too expensive, too hard, you know, too, too much time. And that's when we said we're going. And, you know, we, I think, you know, you like can do prompt trader. That's right. And uh, I think that's when we hired this guy, Wayne, we uh, trained him in the U.S. for a year, sent him back to Shanghai. But we knew we it was going to be a slug. And, you know, when we bring on traders to go uh, to introduce them over there, um, remember, we have the entity. We set up all the compliance, the legal, uh, fully licensed and built our technology into the into all the APIs of the exchanges. Real pain in the ass and doing everything in Mandarin, coincidentally. And the way they calculate the floors. I'm sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say the, the benefit you're going to have is that when big funds, whether it be the Blackstones of the world or whoever else, or the Millimans that go out there, you know, they're going to be in the same boat as you are. If your returns are good, you're going to be able to go access cash because you're going to need a two, three year track record in order to do that. Oh, we can hear it. Uh, my screen just went dark. Um, let me just try to. We we can hear you and see you, so you're okay. You're okay in that. Yeah, your camera's working well. So it's a microphone. So um, <laughs> yeah, no. So it's uh, you know I think anybody that goes over there now spends the time if they can handle the burn and the time, then uh, I think it will pay off if your returns are there. Got to remember, so the portfolio diversification that's not even in their vocabulary, right? Chasing returns is what they do. So you really have to be, you know, in the mindset that you're putting in good return profiles for the next three, four years. And then, uh, you know, as money, as the rules and regulations open up uh, where they do allow Western investors into, let's say, PFMs that, you know, and trade futures versus just securities, or whatever else. And there's a good way where you don't have renminbi exposure, then you'll probably be able to raise some outside money from the U.S. and or Europe. And that's what we're seeing now. And that's the structure. Literally, I had a call with last night with a with an investment bank that is uh, has a Hong Kong wholly owned entity and also a uh, a China entity, big, very big in China, one of the top three. 
And uh, we're talking about doing the swap product. And that's how we're going to take a couple strategies from the U.S., bring them over to the mainland China to trade the Chinese products for, versus swap and try to go raise, you know, however much money we can raise for the products. Yeah, there's two sides of this, right? There's the out, the outside investors, the investors outside China that are interested in how do we trade Chinese markets because it's a new frontier. Right. I guess the expectation is the markets are not nearly as efficient. So the opportunity is potentially much larger. Um, and then you've got the Chinese investors who are trying to access external managers or you know divert their capital out of China and access... Yeah. Uh, and then you've got managers who are in North America who are being interviewed by Chinese investors to trade Chinese markets, right? I mean, we, we had a few of those meetings, whatever, like a year or two ago, Rodrigo, we were in Chicago and we were talking to some investors that had come over from China and were looking to learn about how some North American managers might apply their approach to trade Chinese markets. And that was a jarring experience for us because the people that were interviewing us were themselves traders in China. And somehow the expectation was that you were going to generate hundreds of percent a year. I mean, like, oh, so that, was, that was, that was, a was a yeah, I was about to say that. that was was nice. And remember, I don't, I can remember his name, but he's like, look, I made like 300% last year. Yeah. But I don't expect you to do that. I'd be happy with, I don't know, 50, 60%. Yeah, right. That's like, right. Okay. Exactly. Think, right. I, oh, oh, that's where we're at right now. Okay. <laughs> That's no joke. And it got to the point where I saw some of the return profiles and I was meeting with people in Beijing, Hangzhou, all over the damn place. And I, I'm, I'm looking at these return profiles and I'm like, this can't be real. And then finally I, I look at Brad Bard and I said, let's, I said, screw trying to get our managers funded over there. I need to figure out how I invest in these strategies because they, like I, I'm done in a year. Like I'm retired. I'm going to Cayman to be with you guys. And <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it's, it's unbelievable, but you know what? They do incredibly well and all of a sudden they're gone. And the guys that were the, the, the quant firms that were doing incredibly well decided that if we're making this much money, let's take our fund private, give everybody their money back. And essentially what we do is a family office. And that's how they all of a sudden this one guy who was 27, who went to university of Texas, you know, MBA, you know, make 300 million bucks. And I'm just like, and is that, is that a function of, so you got the second largest economy in the world, yeah. probably one of the largest, you know, sort of commodity consuming markets. And thus, you know, you have this, this, uh, the, 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 the producer and the speculator helping bridge the gap to get some sort of return. Is that a function of the R being that big, or is it just like a long lever trade that is, backed by the government or is the Chinese government involved in these markets to an extent? Like There's no doubt they're involved. Um, and, and all the people that control the big commercials and uh, they're all, it's all tied to the party. Right. Um, and you have to know that going into it. But one thing that's very unique about the Chinese market is that it's about 95% driven by retail investors. And so with that comes a lot of inefficiency. If that were to start to go down, I believe a lot of these strategies that are crushing it would not be as successful, still very successful by a Western perspective, but not nearly as successful as what they were. Right. And so, um, uh, 
so that's what I would say as far as, uh, you know, why there's that much of a discrepancy as far as the return profiles, because it really is herd mentality over yeah, once once wow. the the market runs, it runs for a long time. Like the the thing that I was just talking about how trend works, right? This this narrative that trend is whatever's working will be there and we'll make money on that trend is not true. That for trend to work, there's generally long-term periods of choppiness and then one massive trend yeah. that happens every 3 years that everybody catches and you get this massive boom. When in the Chinese market if you look if you look carefully at the stocks when they trend they go hyperbolic for a long time yeah. and then they go down and break for a long time and if you have that type of reality and you're a trader that can be nimble enough and has the assets because I remember the amount of leverage that they were using the amount of ups and downs that they had in their portfolio was massive i mean they're taking massive volatility yeah. but if they if they had if they believed that that trend was going to continue the way it had or those length of the length of trend was going to continue the way they have you're going to make tons of money in that I mean, a, lot of, a lot of the products out there were long only for a long time right and so you were able to right, trade short. and 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 hedge what you thought <laughs> so we're introducing buyers to compete with the professionals who need the resources to actually build the bridges and buildings and yeah. bake the bread. It's, like, <laughs> it's unreal, right? I mean, it's a bit unreal. It's, yeah. And, and so, you know, now they're allowing these groups to trade more and more and hedge against, um, uh, you know, some of the indices. And that really didn't exist a year ago, a year and a half ago. As a matter of fact, I was over there. During two of my visits, they changed the rule in real time and uh, where you can trade, you can hedge against, you know, 10 contracts, now 50 contracts in, in one of the indices. And and I, it WeChat was blowing up and everybody, the brokers were on the traders faster than the traders knew because the brokers like, we're going to make that much more money, right? It's unbelievable how that went. I'm just like, holy cow, this is insanity. Um but it's just the way it is. I mean, so a lot of these products were long only. Now they're getting a little bit more creative with them. Um, but we'll see what happens. I mean, as it opens up and they bring on more products and uh, there's more liquidity in them, I think it's going to be a phenomenal trade. What, what do you think of the you involvement of, of people like Bridgewater and that sort of thing? Are they anything special or just, just? So when I went out there the first time, there wasn't a bank there that we had ever heard of, right? I mean, it just didn't exist. A year and a half later, they're all working to get their way in there. In all the major firms, um, there were 22 licenses that were provided. I think Bridgewater had one of them. You know, BlackRock, uh, you know, a couple of big big guys. Um, on our side, there was uh, Winton and then um, one other one. Uh, and ultimately, they didn't succeed because they thought the name enough was going to be big enough where – uh, they would they would get massive inflows of AUM, and at the end of the day, they just didn't get them because the returns weren't there. And not only that, the brokers. If you think about it, if you're if you with all think of the RJOs of the world, right? All those independent FCMs. So they've got a hundred of those things over there, right? And they're relatively big. And then all of a sudden, you have a Goldman or a JP Morgan come on board, and you're trying to go after their business. Well, you can't legally invest. Goldman can't take U.S. money and invest it in to Chinese managers. It's just against the law. So where do these managers actually raise money? They raise them just like the introducing broker model here. All those big, all those FCMs are really introducing brokers. And so they want you to clear their business. Great. I'm going to introduce you to all these investors. And, and that's how it works. So 
you know, at the end of the day, nobody went with these guys uh, because they were trying to clear the U.S. counterparts, and uh, they made that big mistake. Um, so they weren't able to raise money, right. and their return profiles were not great. It's like everything, right? You are it, when it comes to the frontier markets, it's all about relationships. Like you have to right. roll up your sleeves, get down and dirty, get to know the people. I mean, what you guys have a local, and you I think were the first, you were the first ones to have an. Uh, that's right. I gotta work on my like karaoke. You were the game. first to have a uh, an office there too, right? Or one of the first. Like you opened up an office there for, for yeah. I don't know and, if you still have it or not, but and so when we first went out there, they and I remember I was out there by myself, and they're like, "Yeah, you're gonna come out here, you're gonna do the dog and pony show, and then we're never gonna see you again because you realize this is a shit show, and it, you know it's way too hard." And they said, "I said, well, what's gonna make you?" believe that we're going to stay. And they said, well, you have to hire Chinese nationals and open an office. So I said, okay, we'll do that. You know, we carved out the budget and we did it. And so that gave us some credibility. And that's where a lot of fails, you know, firms fail. You have to understand their culture and what's important to them. Uh, and then you have to learn, well, you can't go. And this is where Matt and I have gotten into arguments because when Matt first came over, Matt Bradbar from our office, who actually runs our China operation, he was like, well, in America, this is where we... And they're like, yeah, who gives a shit? You're in China. Yeah, exactly. Like, welcome. Now eat the eat the disgusting food and <laughs> and uh, you know, and we're gonna have these little shots. Hey, you know, this, uh, Adam loves that food. Throw oh, him a listen, bug on I, You might like Chinese food, but I don't know if you've ever had this food. <laughs> this is it's you mean the cobra heavy. tail and the it's I'll, I'll tell you right now, when I when the, the, the when the first night they took me to this great place, and I wish I, I, I should go get the little vodka then. You take these little shots and it's like rubbing alcohol. And you don't know what to expect. Like I'm thank God I bought Prilosec with me because I would have been in a lot of pain. I mean, <laughs> it was, you know, and the, I, I said to Wayne, you know, I said, Hey, make sure you order something for me because you know they everything's in a on a lazy Susan and they do this and it's a real toasting culture, and you just get wrecked. And I, he goes, don't worry, we got your chicken. I go, where is it? He goes, here. And I said, no, 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 that's raw skin, and there's a feather in that. He goes, <laughs> chicken, chicken. And I said, oh, I think I see a beak in a claw or a oh, beak. Shit. Shit. Luckily, I was staying at the uh, Four Seasons, and I was ordering up as soon as I got home. And then you really you hit breakfast hard, and then you're kind of you're screwed. But um, no, but actually, you get used to the food, and it's actually really good. I mean, listen, the people in China. They want to do business with the West. It is a unbelievable opportunity, and they're really great people. Like we've, you know, everybody tells you to be careful. They're going to steal your IP. They're going to this. If you're working with firms that are truly regulated, that manage a substantial amount of money, and they're on something called a whitelist, which allows them to take on government funds, they don't want to screw up their reputation either. So you, I mean, you you got to understand the questions that you'd have to ask. Just like if you're going through a CTA and you're doing the DDQ, they don't exactly have that there. That doesn't really exist. Um, so you got to figure out the right question to ask. And if you do business with the right people, you have a great time with them. You can you can work with them and, and you can expect uh, good outcomes. I suppose I suppose in our business too, the one thing that this this whole domain of investing is used to is the theft of IP. Yeah, I mean yeah. it it is it is the. Uh, it is constantly changing, amorphous, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Bobby, about going to where the opportunity is, seeing where they are, seeing what the edge is, and then and then filling that or arbing. The, the, the act of arbitrage is just simply to facilitate a, a more smooth and efficient market. 
And so the pursuit of IP in our business is, you know, an ongoing process forever. And it is the game. I mean, you don't yeah. get to, you don't get to TM your, 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 uh, investment algorithm and, uh, and then no one else can do that anymore. That's right. not the way it works. So it is, it is a slightly different, uh, playing field, I think, than, uh, than most. So it's, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I remember the, on the toasting culture thing. I remember when we were at, in Chicago with, I don't know who was with us from the entourage in China, but every two minutes we were cheering, cheering for something. It was constantly drinking for hours on end while trying to eat. So you just kept ordering more food to make sure that we were on the even kill because it they can they can drink heavily for a long period of time in ways oh, that we can't. I I tell you, it's like uh, I mean the first you know it's it's terrible. It's it's I mean and I'm a boozer and you really have to keep up and it's like. You, you go to these places, there's no, I'll get a kettle soda lemon, uh, I'll, you know, it's only this rubbing alcohol and it can be brutal. <laughs> and it's, I mean, and, Listen, you, know, you only go blind after five or six drinks. Everyone jiggle yeah. their cable again. That the feedback is coming. Are you sure it's not you, Mike? I'm worried about I have, I've unplugged, I've plugged, I've, uh, in my, I'm with if you. it's me, I, I, I wouldn't know how to fix it anyway, so I'm just being honest with you. So. <laughs> That's okay. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, you guys have to make your way over there at some point because it's first off like Shanghai and some of these cities. Beijing is terrible; it's way too big. Um, but some of these cities are just amazing over there. They truly are amazing cities, and the technology that they use outside of clearing and you know DMA access and everything like that uh, on the future side or the security side, it's it's phenomenal. Like I, you know, you, you don't use cash. Like for me to have Remimbi there was people like, what what are you doing? You know. Um, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's really sophisticated. It's very smart. So, how do you compare and contrast sort of the 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 breadth depth of products that are that are offered there? Do they prioritize sort of more financial commodities? Do they prioritize more, um, you know, sort of the, the metals, uh, the 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 yeah, um, the energy sector? Right what, what what's their so soybeans? Is there a bunch of agricultural stuff that's not relevant in the economy here versus there? Yeah, no, there, there's some really esoteric products there that we never would even think about. Um, I actually pulled it up because I knew you guys would bring this up. And I don't know because I'm not dealing with it every day like Matt is. But, I mean, there's, you know, polyurethane, you know, stuff like chloride, you know, obviously rapeseed, more, you know, it's just some really crazy stuff, um, you know, rebar, PTA, which is a type of acid. Um, it's, 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 it's bizarre. So I think it's mainly based on what the economy is doing and commodities in mainland China and then other parts of Asia. Um, but yeah, I think they, the big thing is the commodity side. They want to get really, remember it, what they're trying to do in crude oil is make that the underlying product that everyone's going to use as the benchmark over the next five years or so. Um, and I think they have a real opportunity or change everything to remember uh, um, based versus USD. Well, that was my next question is how much of it is Rimnimbi versus USD or that Asian, have they converted to any of that Asian basket of currencies that they wanted to? It's all Rimnimbi based. So it's all of the commodities all, all are denominated in Rimnimbi from for yeah. that. Everything's Rimnimbi based. Even like when Australia and Singapore or Hong Kong, whenever they're trading those products, it always settles in Rimnimbi. Unless you are able to get it. To, it's never going to say, you know, we, I haven't seen anything settle on USD. 
Mm. Uh, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, and they're not going to allow it to happen because they're trying to compete with us, right? In, in yeah. uh, but, you know, I think maybe as more financial products or the fixed income products come off, you'll have an opportunity uh, as QFI or RQFI comes into play, which is essentially the quota system, which allows you to invest into Chinese products from offshore. Um, and likewise, probably in the near future. I think that will change where you, if you're in Hong Kong or based out of London, if you're doing certain types of swaps with international banks, they'll let you do USD denominated uh, settlement. So, and are you, are you, oh, go ahead, Adam. No, no. If you had something else along that track, no, keep, going. keep going. I was going to say, I was going to flip the script and sort of say, what is the, just going the other way. What is the interest in um, Chinese institutions or Chinese commercials or, you know, maybe even, uh, Chinese retail for investing in non-Chinese markets, strategies, products. Like, is does is any of the capital flowing in the other direction? So, everything wants to flow the other direction. They definitely want to do more business and invest in in the U.S. But they also realize, remember the the major family office and in the, in the investors. While five years ago they wanted all their money out, the opportunities in mainland China right now, right? So they're keeping their money there because they believe that's going to be the biggest appreciation of their wealth. Um, and, uh, you know, and obviously you can, you know, you can put 50 grand or something like that overseas a year. But if these guys want to get money out, they do it through import export business and stuff like that. But yeah, they want to, they want to invest in, in, in the, in the U S and in European uh, markets. A lot of them do. And, um, but you know, the, the people that we originally talked to, they're like, we're no longer interested. We have more opportunity. We can make more money here. So as far as the major commercials, we're dealing with a massive pork uh, buyer out in China right now and, and poultry buyer that typically buys from Brazil. We're trying to bring them to buy from a major producer here in the U.S. That's a household name, and we're trying to do it because we make a spread on it and whatnot. Um, and it's huge. It's absolutely massive. Way above anything we should be working with. <laughs> they, I don't know. They, they they should be going to like a major bank instead. Somehow they're going through RCM. So we'll take it. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I love you, Bobby. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's all now you see these commercials that want to do business with the U.S. and they're getting permission from China because of uh, you know everything that's going on with the trade talks and, and stuff like that. So we're seeing more of that come in from a commercial perspective buying in the commodity world here in the U.S. So this is an expression of goodwill from the party to allow some of this agricultural trade, agricultural buying by Chinese from, I guess, primarily American um, producers, right? Yeah, and it's 100%. primarily agriculture at the moment. A hundred percent. Because even so, like the group that we're talking to six months ago, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Right. Or at least even have the conversation. So, right. Very cool. So, so how what, did you claw your way to that kind of deal, Bobby? Come on, like I'll tell you right now how that deal came apart. One of our big investors in mainland China said, "Hey, would you want to talk to this group about hedging <laughs> pigs?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll hedge some swine. I don't know. Yeah, we'll figure that out." <laughs> and you know, I, I listen. I've never traded hogs or anything. You know, I'm like, yeah. but apparently there's there's 20 different cutlets and stuff like that. And, I get on the phone with them with Matt and I'm like, what the hell are these people talking about? And they're very smart, very sophisticated, but they have never been able to hedge or anything like that. And they've, they've had some big exposure 
Um, and so we brought on our, you know, we have an ag division, so we brought them on and, and we're working the order now. And then we partnered up with a group out of London uh, that deals specifically with this to make the deals with the U.S. Packers. So, um, and I'm, I'm boots I'm, on I'm, ground, roll up your sleeves, get to know people and, and get some business. That's, 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 that's it, a right? third world way. That's right. It, it's also, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually stunned, not stunned, but you know, the, the, the global complexity of the supply chain is kind of awe inspiring. It's right. How, how that's, that's, that web actually interacts and works as an emergent phenomenon. With so many random parts. It's, it's truly amazing. I'll tell you where I've been more, where I've really just understood the supply chain globally is with our technology, with RCMX, we do a lot of business with major commercials, right? And you think BP is a massive oil, right? And energy group. They're small compared to some of these private firms. And, um, I'll just throw out a bunch of names because then it's generic enough where they may or may not be clients, but you've got like, you know, like Total, right? I don't know if you ever heard of Total. Oh, um, yeah. Trafficura, VTOL, uh, Mercuria, Cargill, right? These groups truly run the supply chain. I mean, they're the ones that are making up so – they're so much bigger than BP, and they're all privately held. And they control every aspect of the supply chain from owning – 50 cargo ships, train routes, you know, storage. They've got the physical side. I mean, it's unbelievable how sophisticated and smart these guys are. And they crushed it a couple months ago when oil went nuts. So crushed it. And I, I mean, I talk to the CIO, CTOs of these firms all the time. Opportunity of a lifetime. What's that? Opportunity of a lifetime for them. They, 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 are they said we just made more money than I maybe yeah, I'm getting a jet like the that. Illuminati. Yeah. Yeah. It's I it's know. unbelievable, you know. But you know, that's how they really control the supply chain. And if you look at and I don't want to promote RCM because that's not the purpose of this, but even what we're trying to do in the ag space is we've decided to get involved with now an elevator and now this and this to try to control some of the supply chain to bring the cost basis lower for our clients in that space. And once again, I didn't even know that existed really. You know, I just eat cereal, right? I just eat this, you know, um, give me a loaf of bread and I'm a happy guy. Uh, so, uh, but really it's fascinating how sophisticated every aspect of that really is. Yeah, no wow. doubt. Look, we've got, we got one of our uh, regulars asking uh, when you're going to produce the biopic of the life of the Schwartz brothers. Oh God. It's be really dull movie. Oh, Jason. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's never going to happen. No, I'm, you know, I, so, you know, yeah, I'd rather do a biopic of the Harvey Weinstein brother, him and Bob, a little bit more interesting than just me and my brother. We're just a bunch of dumb traders. So you must have, you must have been, you must have had to deal with, um, with Weinstein when you were doing, when you were back in the, uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of movies with Harvey. I knew him pretty well, actually. You have some good stories? Yeah, definitely got to. I do, that. but that's something I definitely. Yeah, let's cut that to the. Let's go to the green room. You told me a story <laughs> when, when we were in New York recently on the Hedge Fund Management Awards, which was, it was just, you know, one time when you were in the, uh, in the trading desk and you had, you thought you were having a heart attack 
And just the way they dealt with that, going to the the fact that there was a nurse down the hall that dealt with all the traders that would lose their minds, yeah, yeah. set back to finish the trades. Love to hear that story. No, when we, that was on the floor because um, people would OD, right? They'd stroke out. It was pretty crazy. So we had a full ER on the floor of the CME, <laughs> and they had it on the CBOT as well. And I would, I used to, I started having these massive panic attacks, and I would. Go down. I'm like, I'm having a gripper. This is the big one, you know. And they would be like, Bobby, here's an Us magazine, you know, to some, and take your Xanax and get back out there. You know? And doesn't uh, say that to them. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, they 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 knew how I was because I was having all these panic attacks. But I'd look over and I'd be like, Oh, hey, Steve, and he'd be like, I know, because he has panic attacks too. And I'm like, Oh, what triggered yours today? You know, I mean, it was. It was pretty insane. I mean, but, you know, I mean, they, they had that ER there for a reason. And uh, I saw him carry out a lot of people. Turn to the guy next to you and be like, can you cover my trades for a second? I might be dying right now. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Oh, what yeah. And there's no doubt. I'd be like, hey, what's my position to my clerk? And I I go go like this and, you know, get him to my brother and have my brother cover him. You know, I mean, they, I mean, but, he, you know, it was it was very crazy down there. I mean, it was. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you want to talk stories. I've got stories that would knock your socks off. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we got five minutes. Choose one. Yeah, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was one of those things. And, you know, once again, this was a lot different time where you'd be out getting drunk and whether, you know, you know, I, I, I could have literally, I'll tell you a great story. So a guy came over and I, we had now trade and we kept on coming at it. He'd be like seven on a hundred. I'd be like sold. And we was, it became a pissing contest, right? This one I was trading my own account and his, and he goes six on hundred. I go sold. If you love him at six, you're gonna love him at four, right? And you're gonna love him at two. You're gonna love him at zero. And he kept on doing. It. Next thing you know, I'm offsetting with spoos. I've got like seven hundred futures on bigs, not the minis. He's got the same thing on, and we look at each other and we're just like, what are we doing? He goes I go, I like this, and he goes six bit. I go say seven hundred. He goes five seven hundred, and we're just like, they got me out of that. And the next, you know. The next day, we're just having a beer going, how stupid were we? Both of us could have bought 15 million bucks real quick. And uh, it was nuts. But, you know, you would be out at happy hour at 4 o'clock and people like, what are we going to do tonight? And like, gas up the plane. Let's go to Vegas. We'll be back in time for, by the open. Or when I was living in New York and trading out there, gas up the chopper. Let's go out. We'll hit AC and be back by the time the open was. And, you know, you go trade the open, fall asleep for three hours, and come back and trade the close and rinse and repeat. You know, <laughs> a sustainable yeah, I, lifestyle. I, yeah, right. I, I see that the utility of the um, nurse's office was more than just for panic attacks. Oh, this, let me tell you, it was. Uh, they they were they were great people. They really helped a lot of us out. So, so, so what do you guys pioneered? What do you think your movie like, career is going to be like in China? When are we going to launch that? That's that's oh, that's, that's really <laughs> there, man. They, I'll tell you right now. So Hollywood uh, has raised a tremendous amount of money out of China, and they've all these Chinese investors have all gotten crushed. So I don't think there's a lot of money coming back into uh, Hollywood anytime soon. But well, the yeah. other way around, a lot of Chinese yeah. movies coming out. There's a lot of Chinese movies coming. I mean, listen, it's I mean, it's it, it's one of the biggest territories in the world, right? Yeah. So, and they're not pirating anymore. They're actually trying to make money off the industry. Well, I also think that they like the key characters that are in movies are paid for, right? You get funding. Is no that, is, no I, that it, it's a like if you get, if you have an, so Marvel's launching several, you know, yeah. Asian type, which is awesome. 
uh, superheroes, and you, I think you get funded for that if if it, it comes to China and you get you get a actual break or I, I don't oh, know exactly absolutely. how it so works. You, even here in the U.S. or if you go to Asia, depending on how much you film there, you're going to get a tax incentive, right? Anywhere from fifteen to forty percent of your budget. Now, if you're making a thirty million dollar movie and you're telling me you're going to give me twelve million back to film in your territory, yeah, I'll make it look like Toronto in shanghai after you know you'll figure it out because it you know it reduces your exposure and your break evens a lot lower so uh that happens all the time i mean but if you look at movies now uh just like business in general it's becoming more diversified and they're bringing in different actors because i'll I'll tell you I'll, i'll compare it to when i first started trading my indicators were you know the bonds crude gold, right? All domestic products. Um, and then by the time I left, it was a global marketplace and you had to really have global indicators as far as what you were looking to trade. It's no different in the movie business. Probably every industry now is that, uh, you know, you have to bring in Chinese actors into your films. You have to bring in uh, someone from like, you know, a German actor. You'll see German actors come in because it's a massive territory. They, they, they spend a lot of money over there. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And, and you, I, I don't think that's ever going to stop. And I think Africa is going to be a big place that they're going to focus on in the next five to seven years. So, so, so Bobby, you know, I, I, in the last uh, few minutes that we have, I, I've never asked you this, but when you uh, left Chicago, yeah, what made you think that you were qualified in any way whatsoever to get into the movie business? Like, What, could, what possibly could have gone through your head to say like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. What was the leap? Can I guess? Can I guess? I I want to guess. I I built it. confidence? No, no, I I think he couldn't handle the, 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 the party life of the market anymore. So he had to take a break. Yeah, right. So so it was just too intense for him. So he went to Hollywood. That's right. That's, that's, that's pretty much, uh, no. Uh, I think at the, you know, at the time I was, I was 30 or 29 and uh, I said, you know what? I love going to the movies. I think I'm going to go out there. And Goldman had just done M&A on a deal uh, that I was part of. And um, and I wound up doing some consulting for Goldman Sachs out there for the special situations group. And that was like getting an MBA in Hollywood real quick. And everybody opens their books and their doors. And I came up with a factor model, uh, just like trading, for making movies. And I came back to Goldman. And I said, and they were going to do this Paramount slate. And I said, you're going to get crushed. It's like the Wild Wild West out here. These guys don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, and they don't really, everybody's creative. Nobody's financially savvy. And I said, okay, I'm going to be able to do this on my own. Came back to Goldman after traveling back and forth from New York 20 times and said, you're going to get crushed. Don't do it. I started my own deal. I raised a couple hundred million pretty quick uh, from Fortress and Grosvenor Capital out of London. And uh, based on my exposure and my factor model, which is still used today in Hollywood, um, it's uh i was like so are you the progenitor of the factor model which is the key actor the place it's shot being the the function of the success of the movie like there's like three key factors that you have to have so many a b actors where you're going to shoot it what the well yeah so that's all part of it right so that that will determine what your budget is but uh to me the factor model was you had to have x amount of things in place from a prep from a legal from a overseas contract your hedge and there was about a 72-point factor model that I had to have about 60 of the points covered in order to trigger the movie, where I only knew I was taking about 15% exposure on any one film. And uh, and so that's kind of the way we did it with knowing that we, you know, 
even if you hit the cover off the ball, you're not going to make a hundred million dollars like a Blair Witch Project, but you'll do very well, yeah. and you'll make a good return on capital. Um, so and so when I went out there, I started my own deal after I did the consulting, and uh, my first movie was a hit, and um, I scalped it essentially. Uh, well, what was it? It was a movie called Unknown, and it was yes, the, it is the way. The way, the way <laughs> it is. Yes, and by the way, yes, you're right. And uh, but it, <laughs> no, you're 100 right. <laughs> I'll tell you another person. So uh, I scalped it and I sold it to Harvey Weinstein. And that was my first break. And Harvey came in and in 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 uh, in the WME Endeavor, Ari Emanuel's office and goes, fuck you. I want the title, the whole deal. And I just pushed him back and I said, fuck you. I go, this ain't my first rodeo. I go, this is a hobby for me. This is not my job. I go, I'll play it. And he didn't realize that I was working with Goldman. I knew where the bodies were buried and they were just getting bought out by Disney and Goldman was about to fund them. And I was able to hold that up for about a week until he paid me. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I had, there was a great restaurant here in Chicago uh, named Kiefer's. It's since it's closed, the great steakhouse. And the chef comes up to me and they knew me in there. And I was back in from LA for a week or so. And he goes, Bobby, I got to tell you, he goes, whenever I'm hungover and I want to watch some real bad movies, all I do is Google <laughs> you and I, <laughs> I pull up your movies. He goes, ah, oh, it puts me right back to bed. <laughs> that's, that's what this guy's so you want some extra sauce for the steak? I'm like, oh, man, appreciate that. Well, so, that's, that that's is a great uh, story to end on. Great, great story. Great. Bobby. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. Totally. Always great to hang yeah, out no, with you. Always fun. Always fun. Hopefully, so, we'll be able to travel back and forth soon and see each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe right, I'll convince my wife to move out to the Caymans. Done. Let's do it. Yeah. So. All right, brother. All right, guys. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.